Right, the reading is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. You'll find it in the Pew Bibles at uh, page 668. Page 668. Ecclesiastes 1. Everything is meaningless. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes ever returning on its course. All streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Wisdom is meaningless. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to be here. Uh, My name is Clive. Um, I always think it's a little bit odd, these situations. It's like, I don't really know you. You don't really know me. But you're asking me to come and speak the word of the Lord. And it's a lot of uh, trust in that. So... um, I just want to say that uh, I've been praying for you. I don't know you. You're not my sheep. Uh, But I I sense the Lord wants to speak to us about the profoundness of Ecclesiastes. Why would a visiting speaker come and speak on Ecclesiastes? There's a member of our congregation in his 90s. He said, I've never heard a preacher preach on Ecclesiastes. And maybe... You are the kind of church that preaches Ecclesiastes all the time, but my guess is you're probably not. 
But one of the interesting things as an introduction to Ecclesiastes is, is that it doesn't need any mosaic or Abrahamic knowledge. You could be somebody that knows nothing of the Bible or the Christian faith or the Jewish faith, and yet it speaks. Because what it does is it speaks to us as human beings. We're all made in the image of God, and it speaks to us about life. And the, the unifying aspect of it is, is that we're all humans who are all broken people, who at times find things meaningless, who toil, who strive for things, who go our own way, who do our own thing, and we're all the same people under the sun who all need a saviour. And so that's what's so great about Ecclesiastes. If you enjoy this, I'm not asking you to do a TripAdvisor review, but if you enjoy it, then you can go online and find the rest of the talks that we're doing in Ecclesiastes. Because I thought, what would I do? Would I come here and speak on John's gospel or Luke's gospel or something? I thought, it's too hard to change gear from what the Lord has been saying in this season. But the interesting thing, as it says in Revelation, is that the Spirit also speaks to the churches. The Spirit is not just speaking to Kurt Liston Community Church. He's speaking to St. Thomas's and P's and G's and Central and all churches. And if we wait on the Lord, we'll hear what the Spirit is saying in this season of life, which at, like, it, at times can be very confusing, can't it? The age that we live in. But you know what? There's nothing new under the sun in that. Life has always been confusing if we live that in our own strength. So I'm just going to pray now. And we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit's help to understand more of his word and to help me in my weakness to preach in his power. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and we humble ourselves before your word. Your word is true and it is powerful and it speaks to the very core of our being. And so we're asking now for your Holy Spirit's help. I don't want to speak this in the flesh. I want your Spirit's help to help me in my weakness. But I want us as listeners as well to hear your Holy Spirit prodding us with your still small voice about where we are and about how glorious you are. And so, Jesus, would you be lifted up in this place? Would your name be glorified? Would your power would be made known for your kingdom's sake? In Jesus' name, amen. So here's a question for you. Who and what are you living for? I'm going to give you 30 seconds to think about that. And I'm going to sit back in my seat. Sometimes preachers say this. This is not rhetorical. Who and what are you living for? Think about that for 30 seconds and then I'll come back. Now, of course, the Sunday school answer is Jesus, isn't it? But if you're honest in your heart today, if we were to say, for me to live is, is it your family? 
Is it your work? Is it sport? What have you put in that blank? Because if it's not for me to live as Christ, then we are worshipping something more than Christ. And what Ecclesiastes is doing is speaking to our very hearts about who we are and who God is and what we're living for. Uh, just on this next slide, there's a quote from Harold Kushner, who is uh, a Jewish um, author, who says, The woman who dreamed of marrying a successful doctor or corporate executive and living in a fancy house in the suburbs may find herself well married and living in her dream house, but cannot understand why she goes around every morning saying to herself, Is this all there is to life? And it could be that somebody has this incredible dream house that they've looked to make. You've had an amazing career or you want an amazing career or you think that life is heading towards retirement. But there are moments when you get there, when you think that this is what I really want and you get there and you say, is this all there is to life? There's an emptiness. Because we look at the outward appearance, don't we? Look what he's got, look what she's done, look what they've done, look what they've got. But God looks at the heart. And that is both scary, but it's also freeing that he looks at our hearts. Because he's not interested in our works. He's not interested in our proficiency. He's not interested in how many degrees we've got. He looks at our heart and whether our heart is for him. So I've got three questions, and the first one is, what do we gain from the text? What do we gain from all our striving? So Ecclesiastes 1 to 2. And what we see here is it says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. So here is this guest preacher coming to tell you, hope you have a nice Sunday. Everything is meaningless, folks. And I hope you have a, a joyous day as you go from here as you consider that everything is meaningless. But what we need to consider is, is that many think this is Solomon, but also many scholars think it's a writer in the tradition of Solomon. So for the sake of that, I will often talk about the preacher. That whether it's Solomon or whether it's another preacher, it's in the Solomonic uh, tradition. It's in the vein of uh, Solomon. And he says meaningless. Now that can sound utterly depressing. But what we need to understand is, is that in the original Hebrew comes this key word which is hevel. And hevel is what translates as breath. What translates as a mist. Okay. So just while I continue talking, some of you who are very observant will be saying, why has he got a kettle at the front? Do they take a tea break at Kurt Liston after five minutes when he gets fed up preaching or maybe he gets a little bit tired? Well, no. Here comes an illustration about what meaninglessness, hevel, looks like. So if we place and lean in life our meaning on the things that we see or the things that we hold or the things that we touch, what the preacher is saying is that is hevel. That is temporary. That is like a mist. It's like steam. And one minute it's here, and the next minute it's not here. 
Who knew how long a kettle took to boil, even when we tried it before? But you see, that's the point. We can't even create steam when we want it. It's so heavy. But here comes the steam. Here comes what our lives look like when we base it on just the here and now. The temporary, it's steam. It's like you can't get hold of it. That's all it is. And isn't that sobering? Doesn't that make you think to yourself, wow, what am I really living for if it's all hevel? Well, we mustn't be utterly depressed about that because if we look through the rest of Ecclesiastes, what it talks about in terms of the temporiness of life is, is that life is hevel, it is steam, it is short, so we better enjoy it. We better enjoy the food and the drink and the work that God has given us and make the most of it. He's affirming of these things. He's not dualistic in saying, well, everything is spiritual and anything physical doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. He's saying life is short, it's hevel, but also life is short, don't waste it in the light of eternity. Don't be like the pagans and just live for here and now, eat, drink and be merry, but eat, drink and enjoy work and enjoy your spouse, but do so in the light of eternity. Do so in the light of eternity. And so on the next slide, we hear of echoes, don't we, of Jesus. When Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And it's interesting in Ecclesiastes is that when we often think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as the, as the king and the priest and the prophet. But Jesus is also the sage. He's also the wise one. And we hear echoes of this in Ecclesiastes, but also reflected back in, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark. What shall a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's hevel. It's temporary. If you put all your time and energy into these things, into success and money and the good life, and that's it, it will go. It will be like steam. What will you gain? What will you profit from all of this? So what do we gain from all of our striving? We need to be careful that we're not just living in a way that is just like mist, like living for things that are so temporary that we forget them in the light of eternity. But secondly, on the next slide, why do we live for recognition? And where am I seeing this in the text? Well, it's in two places, in verse 4 and verse 11. Verse 4 says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Verse 11 says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So, what is this about? Well, let me ask you a question. Who is your great, great grandmother? And you might say, oh, well, yes, I know that. I, I, I've joined Ast ancestry.com or whatever it is and I know it's Edith Mackay and she lived up in Sutherland and had a croft well, well well done you that's good but what if I said who is your great 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 grandfather who's he you might be like well actually no I have done that ancestry.com and I could even tell you that okay that's Fergus Ross well 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 done you but you never knew him you might have his name on a 
family tree, but you never actually knew him. And again, the sobering thought here is this, is that all the time and all the energy and all the effort and all the stress and all the pursuit and all the toil is such that in a hundred years' time, people will be saying, Clive Parnell, who is he? I've never heard of him. Never heard of him in my life. David McCarthy, no idea who you're talking about. I've got no idea who you're talking about. And again, isn't that sobering? Because so much of our time is like, okay, I've got to make a mark. I've got to do this. I need to be seen. I need to be noticed. We might not say that overtly, but subliminally we're thinking, I want my life to count. I want people to remember me. There's nothing wrong in doing well and people thanking God for that and a legacy being left. But can't we see that we will be unremembered people? But there will be one who is remembered. And his name is Jesus. We will be unremembered. But there is one who will be remembered and his name is Jesus. Our striving for recognition is such that we often look at the grass is greener on the other side. We think if I could just get to there then my life would be more complete. If I could just fix this, then my life would be more satisfying. Our striving for recognition is such that we, we see this in literature. We see this in films. We see this in history. Many of you will be aware of the film, It's a Wonderful Life. It often comes out at Christmas, doesn't it? That black and white film. Bit of a tearjerker as you're eating your quality street chocolates. You can't resist crying over the tearjerker that is a wonderful life. And I'm sure many of you have seen the film that involves George Bailey as the central character in the film. And he becomes restless in his job and in his hometown, as many of us sometimes do. Well, what's next? I need to be recognized, my boss doesn't see me, or people don't think I'm good enough, or surely I'm good enough and I need to be seen in a bigger, uh, be a bigger fish. And he believes that he needs to travel beyond his hometown to find meaning, to really prove himself. And he gets beyond the city, uh, the village limits or town limits and gets to a bigger place, and then life doesn't quite work out the way that he thought it would work out. And so we're just going to watch a short a video of that. It's just literally one minute from the film when he realizes his life is not working out the way it should. position where you feel that you're at the end of your rope or maybe you're in that place now where you've gone one way and you're looking to do certain things 
and you're trying to get recognition, but in reality, it doesn't work out the way that you thought. And so he was at the end of his rope, and he decided, like the prodigal, to go home. We might say, why are things not done the way I want it? We want recognition like that. Why can't I have this now? Why do I have to wait? Why don't people ask me? Why, why don't people recognize me and ask me? Why do people not invite me? Why do they invite them? And we get caught up in this circle or cycle of wanting recognition. But the sun rises and the sun sets. The wind blows round and round. And the clock ticks and hours go by. And life still remains temporary. Life is still heavy despite our hunger for recognition. Life is still heavy. Well, in our hunger for recognition, there is one who does see you. And his name is Jesus. And we read in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God sees you. God is for you. God knows you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. So in your hunger for recognition, in your struggle with heaven, he knows you and he sees you and he loves you and he wants you to know him. He died for you and rose again in order that you might be seen. He sees you and he knows you and he made you and he knew you before you were even born. Isn't that amazing? In our restlessness for recognition and striving, we can know a God who loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die and, and rise again for us. He sees you, and so therefore we don't need to hunger for recognition. The gospel frees us from works and frees us from the pursuit of recognition. And verses 9 and 10, uh, the third main point is, why do we live for the next big thing? Have you noticed that in verses 9 and 10 we see what has been will be again and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. Now, the smart Alex amongst us say, well, we haven't always had the internet, have we? We haven't always had mobile phones. But this is really not the point. This is the point of mankind, if you like, repeating the patterns of good and bad, that history, as we often hear, repeats itself. There are times in history where people have acted in confusion and in Babel and, and, and in pagan lifestyles that when we see such things today that are confusing, we can think that's the only time that that's ever happened. But we've seen in society how societies have gone wrong, have gone pear-shaped in the past. We can see in history that there have been revivals and awakenings of the church, but then there's also been a dying off, and then there's been a return to that. And so we see that often history repeats itself. But we are hungry for something bigger and something new, have you noticed that even in your own life, in your own heart? If I could just have that new thing, if I could just have that new experience. 
And part of that is because reality involves us having to deal with drudgery. We need to wash the dishes. Meals need to be made. The bins need to be put out. We don't often talk about these things at church, do we? Because they sound boring and drudgery. But that's part of reality of how we worship God. Such things are part of our everyday lives and our everyday weeks. Work needs to be done. As well as amazing things like enjoying a good meal or enjoying nice time with friends. But there's also this desire for the next big thing and something new because as we go on in life, and there are different seasons of life as we read about in Ecclesiastes 3, we will experience grief and we will experience ongoing, often hidden challenges in our lives. And so we desire for the next big thing. Get me out of here because I'm grieving. Get me out of here because there's a chronic problem that is not going away. And Grace and I in our own lives have experienced that grief. About 12, 13 years ago, her uh, brother, my brother-in-law, died in a, a tragic canoeing accident. No chance to say goodbye. The shock of dying in such a terrible way and such pain and grief lives with you. And of course we hunger for something new because we want to see all things made new. We want to be in the new heaven and the new earth. But ongoing challenges, hidden challenges exist too, such of which we have in our own family with our daughter having disabilities. And all of that makes me weak. Some of that I want to hide and come to you and say, my pride says, well, I'll come here as a preacher and say, well, I've kind of got my life together, but I haven't. I struggle still with the grief of loss. I struggle still with ongoing challenges, hidden challenges of disability. I struggle with the anxiety that brings. How does that qualify me to come and preach to you? Shouldn't I be more proficient and have my act together? Shouldn't I feel better about my life before I come and preach to you? But I come in my weakness, and I boast in my weakness that Jesus is the one who comes in power in our weakness. And we need to be people who speak more of our weakness. Not in a morbid way, but in a way that we say, I'm weak, you're weak, we need Jesus. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And I know that as we often look, I know David McCarthy's moved on, and often as you look for a new rector or in any type of leadership, often people are saying, well, how proficient is this person? How together are they? How have they got life together? And what I want to see is a generation of pastors who say, I don't have it together. I'm weak. I have problems just like you. But Jesus, by his grace, uses us to be glorified in our weakness. And just as we move towards the last couple of slides, one of the ways that our society hungers for something new, if we look at the next slide, is that we often see where our culture is at. This is something that I can suggest to you to maybe observe. You might disagree. But I think often we can see where our culture is at by the current adverts of Pepsi and Coca-Cola. They often reflect where society is at. So Pepsi say, 
thirsty for more. That we are to buy into this idea that what you have is not enough. That you are thirsty to know more in life. And so the ordinary things of washing, cooking meals, changing nappies, doing school runs, looking after grandchildren is not enough, but Pepsi can help. So at a costly expense for this illustration, I've had to go and buy these before I've come here. If Grace can maybe just open this one. So as we open, if we get the sound of that on, we have a moment of hevel, a moment of bubbles, hopefully not going everywhere, a moment of bubbles that, that remind us that those passing bubbles are just this hunger to thirst for more, that I want more. Hopefully I'm not going to be too buzzed up after that. But, but the, the reminder that Pepsi will say to you, and they rightly identify in a very ecclesiastical way, that you are a thirsty person. And you want more from life. But the problem is, they are saying to you, buy our Pepsi and that will buy you into a culture that says we thirst for more. And Coca-Cola tells you, bubbling off the back of existentialism in the 1960s, if it feels good, do it, that if you take a sip of Diet Coke, then you can drink down the current narcissistic views where the self is at the center and love is all about you and what you want. So love what you love. This narcissistic view that it's all about you and what you love. It's all about you being at the center. So buy and drink our Coke and you can have this experience of loving whatever you love. Now, of course, none of us are really going to the, I don't know, petrol station and buying one of these, if we, if we even buy them, and thinking, I'm going to buy into this culture of love what you love. But there's a push towards, this is what we're really about. And the next slide reminds us that Martin Luther once said, that let us therefore commit ourselves into the present and commit ourselves into the hand of God, who alone knows and controls both the past and the future. And Luther was right in saying that we need to really commit ourselves into the present. Commit ourselves to God now. He's talking about not what's going to happen in a week, what's going to happen in five years, but committing ourselves to God now and to living for Christ in the present. And I suppose we could, if we just move to the next slide, we could summarize some of this by saying, it matters, but God matters more. This stuff matters, the good and the bad, but it matters more. He matters more. And Colossians 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So it matters, but God matters more. That Jesus is the one who is over all things. That he has the ultimate authority. That he is the one who came and died and rose again, ascended to heaven, will one day return where all things will be made new. And no longer will it be heaven. 
No longer will there be just steam. No longer will there be toil. No longer will there be heartache. No longer will there be grief. No longer will there be frustration and depression and anxiety. There will be peace at one with God for him forever. Don't we want that? Your heart aches for that. Your body, as you age, physically reminds you that you need that. And so there is good news. There is the gospel that he will make all things new, that he is over all of this heaven. He wants us to enjoy him. And he wants us to enjoy life, but to live for his glory. Jesus knows you. He knows your circumstances. He made you. He sees you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He comes to serve you. Isn't that an amazing thought? He didn't come to be served, but to serve. I've just been meditating on that this week, and I'm not quite sure what that looks like. But just to receive from him. Isn't that a beautiful thing as we toil away? to receive from Christ the one who wants to serve. He comes to give you life. Do we come to Jesus, therefore, and bow the knee to him and receive from him? Receive forgiveness. Receive wisdom. Receive eternal life through his son, Jesus. Who and what are we living for? Might we say, For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. That is the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this reminder this morning of how we can see the gospel in the book of Ecclesiastes. How we see our need of Jesus. How we see our need of the gospel. And how you change us. And so forgive us for toiling away too hard. For looking for recognition. For striving too much to impress others. And we thank you that the gospel frees us from such things. And we thank you that you want us to enjoy your creation. To go from here and enjoy the day that you've given us. But may we hold it lightly, recognizing it's heaven and recognizing that we do what we do in the light of eternity for your glory and your name's sake. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.